Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, of course, beloved, to the well-worn pages of the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana for lending their gifts to the body, leading us in worship. I was commenting to someone this week that if our counting is correct, this week is our 100th message in Mark. We had jokes some time ago that we need marathon t-shirts. It says, I, I survived the gospel of Mark at Harrison Hills. Hang in there, having full confidence that if you have leaned in, if you've pressed in for understanding and growth, you are a different Christian today than when we started our journey two and a half years ago. I pray that your palate and your taste has grown and changed into desiring even more the deep riches of God's word. Still, let us be reminded what we hold in our hands. What exactly are the depths that we are swimming in? Well, if one can remember back a hundred messages ago, how was it that Mark came about recording his gospel? You recall that Mark essentially copied down a series of about five sermons given by Peter in Rome. Mark wrote as Peter spoke. So what does Peter have to say about what we hold in our hands this morning, about what we're about to read and explore. Well, if one looks to Peter's second epistle, the first chapter, Peter is talking about an incredible experience that he had. He's talking about the amazing things that he witnessed in Jesus' ministry. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16, listen to what Peter says. For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as the utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we made ourselves heard, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what is Jesus, what is Peter talking about here? The transfiguration, right? Now imagine being there for such an event, to seeing Jesus visibly revealed for who he is, to behold the beauty of heaven, the radiant white, the majestic glory, God's voice literally coming down from heaven. It's hard to imagine anything even coming close to experiencing something like this. Short of beholding Christ in all of his glory, seated at the right hand of the Father, This is probably the top of the heap that any human could experience on this side of heaven. We heard the very utterance of heaven, and Peter declares this. Watch what Peter says this, says next. This is for you, saints. How do you beat that? How do you top the transfiguration and being there? What could be greater or higher than watching the Son of God be transfigured before you? Peter's going to tell us next verse. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. Did you catch that, dear saints? We saw one of the most incredible sights ever beheld by the human eye. But there is something more sure than that. There is something to be esteemed even more than that. Something to be cherished and paid attention to more than that. The word of God. The transfiguration on the mountain was amazing, but I have something more sure. 
the word of God. Thus, Peter is encouraging us this morning. The very best and highest that God makes available to humanity was not even to be in the inner circle with Jesus as Peter was, to witness all manner of glory and miracles, but rather it is to hold the word of God in your hand. Do we get that? Peter was there. And his testimony is, we have been given something more sure than even that. How many today in Christianity are running after and seeking after an experience? Seeking after a thrill in their worship or in the Holy Spirit. Peter says, any experience you could ever have, I have it beat by a 10-mile stretch. And I'm telling you, you have something even more sure. The word of God in your hands. Isn't that incredible? Even now as we consider that it was Peter who was the source for Mark, which we launch into once again. So beloved, if the primacy and the privilege of beholding the scriptures in your hand has grown common or even dim in your sight, may we heed Peter's exhortation this morning. That which is more sure has been made available to us this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we were blessed to launch back into our series on last things, completing part three of birth pains. We were confronted anew and afresh that these topics, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, are not academic machinations. This is not end times entertainment or a curiosity. It is so deeply practical, giving life and color and flavor to every facet of our lives. That being said, it does require one to strive for understanding. Even as Peter told us that we would do well to pay attention to. Boldly declaring in his second epistle, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. There's no high and lofty theology to contend with there, beloved. How very simple. We need not complicate the simple, particularly when it comes to matters of eschatology. We do not allegorize and we do not spiritualize. We preach and teach the plain reading of the text in the literal, historical, contextual, grammatical method. We watch so many get twisted into knots when they come to these matters. But be encouraged. We don't employ a different way of reading and interpreting the scriptures just because we come to matters of eschatology. Our hermeneutic does not change. We preach Mark 13 just like we did 12 and just as we will 14, Lord willing. And still, as we dive even deeper into the Olivet Discourse, we behold with great awe the lengths that God will go ultimately to bring justice against a world in rebellion. And in that, we are given a most able auxiliary, a most able weapon in our own contention and battle with sin. And is it not well that we behold these difficult attributes of God? Not of those fearing His wrath, for we have been delivered from wrath, but as a child brought into the loving reverence, the fear and the sobriety of discipline. We are awakened with renewed sensitivity and conviction to flee the sin that has exacted such a cost, to run from the rebellion that will bring such suffering and death, hiding ourselves under the cleft of the Savior. 
Last week was, well, something of a review for us as we had paused for Easter and we kind of needed a refresh to get back up to speed. We began walking through the first four of Jesus' signs of the end of the age in the Olivet Discourse, the beginning of birth pains. These, of course, represented perfectly in sequence with Revelation 6, with Christ having been given the scroll with seven seals in Revelation 5. We watched as Jesus laid out for us the culmination of days. Seeing the tapestry of the Olivet Discourse woven perfectly with what are known as the four horsemen of Revelation. We had the white horse representing a false peace. False messiahs promising solutions to the breaking down of society. Not only to be broken by the red horse. Symbolizing war, just as Jesus said. And this now gives way to the black horse, representing all manner of natural disasters, plague, disease, famine, earthquakes. Again, right in perfect sequence of Jesus' warning. And finally, those culminate in the pale horse, the fourth horse, symbolizing death on a massive scale, 25% of the world's population. Today, that number would be around 2 billion people. Of course, all this is going to culminate and climax with the nations of the world coming together to make battle against Israel. At the end of that seven years of tribulation, with Israel being put into such a position of utter destruction that nothing and no one other than God can save her. In fact, we looked deeply to Zechariah 14 last week as we saw that it was Yahweh himself that was both orchestrating this very attack and that it would be Yahweh who would defend her against the attack, reminding us of God's all-encompassing sovereignty over the affairs of man. And this mighty battle, this attack on Israel, will culminate in the second coming of Christ, coming on a white horse, reading about this from Revelation 19 and on, ushering in a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, the inauguration of the millennial kingdom where righteousness reigns. I know that these are very packed, very dense messages. I've had some tell me that they've benefited greatly by going back later in the week and and listening again, especially if these are new areas of learning for you. I want to encourage you, beloved. The juice is worth the squeeze. Go for it. Jesus Jesus' will for his disciples in these matters. Jesus' will for us in these matters. He tells us at the beginning, Mark 13, 5, is to not be deceived. And he closes it with the bookend at the end in verse 37 to have understanding and to be on the alert. Today we continue on in Jesus' response to his disciples as they are sitting on the Mount of Olives. They're looking out over the temple in Jerusalem, having asked Jesus what will be the sign of his coming and what will be the signs of the end of the age. As Jesus has given a preview so far of what is to come, revealing the epic rise and the utter saturation of sin and the decay and decomposition that will consume the world when the church is removed from the earth. Yet up until this point, as we continue to look into the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and by the way, we get those times and those years from the prophetic book of Daniel, which we will cover much more next week when we finally arrive, or two weeks from now, when we finally arrive at the abomination of desolation. My wife was quipping this morning that it's possible we may be preaching that on Mother's Day. That's okay. 
Well, at this point, our focus has fallen mostly upon the first four signs in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, correlating perfectly, of course, to the first four seals of Revelation 6. And speaking of the effects upon the earth, the physical manifestations of the destruction that we'll see, the earthquakes, the famines, the wars, the proliferation of deception, but all the while this is happening, God is still at work saving a people unto himself. In the midst of being consumed with all these horrific images, we may be tempted to forget that at the heart of all this tragedy and this deception of the the very cosmos literally beginning to break down, God still has a people to save. Consider the darkest days of the Middle Ages. Consider the most destitute times in our history where the word of God seemed nowhere to be found. God has always kept a remnant for himself. The line of the church has remained unbroken since Pentecost. Thus, Jesus now turns his eye to the state of his people. Not only, as we have said, leading up to this time of tribulation in the future, right? Telescope in, binoculars in. But for those he will save during that time, telescope out. Who are they? What will happen to them? We have much to see in our text today, so with that, let us open with our text. It's going to be a two-part series, I think. <laughs> Mark 13, 9 through 13, beloved. But see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, and when they lead you away, Delivering you up, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are deep waters for us. These are difficult things for us. Lord, we bring our prior lives to this message. We bring our prior understandings to this message, which needs us a needy people. Now, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to understand and to apply this to our lives. So we ask, Lord, that you would go before us in this, that the arrow might find its mark. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those of you who are keen of eye may have noticed something a little extra added to our text this morning up on the screen. You'll observe that we have added some underlines. That was intentional. To focus our hearts, to drive home a key point of application from the start. You may have noticed that the title of our message today in our series of last things is titled, A Servant is Not Greater. Now I want us to look at our text observing the underlined portions. And what do you see? First, they will deliver you to the courts. Then you will be beaten in the synagogues. Then you will stand before governors and kings. Then they will lead you away, delivering you up. You will be betrayed unto death. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all. Tell me, saints, what do you see? 
Or rather, who do you see? You see your Savior, don't you? In telling his disciples what is to come, in telling the generations of Christians that will suffer what is to come, in telling the tribulation saints what is to come, he will go there first. Jesus told his disciples, and only a day from now, as they will sit in the upper room in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. A Christian is to walk in the footsteps of his master. Paul cried out that I may know the power of Christ's resurrection, that I may be a partaker in the sufferings of Christ, that I may be conformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. The reality, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter is writing to the diaspora Jews in his epistle, wasn't he? To those who had been scattered by persecution, and he encourages them, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Look up. Be ready with clear eyes, Paul tells the Corinthians, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So let that frame our hearts and our minds as we dive even deeper into the Olivet Discourse. Being reminded lest we forget, we're still on Wednesday of Passion Week. We've been there a while. Sometimes as the months rolls on, roll on at Harrison Hills, it's easy to forget where we are in the timeline. Still Wednesday. So with that, let's dive into our first verse, saints. Verse 9, verse 9. But see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. Well, I, I hope at this point that understanding some of the basic principles of interpretation, you know, things like near and far fulfillment of, of types and anti-types, for example, have helped to demystify and make some of these passages a little less intimidating for some. We're going to continue employing that same hermeneutic as we press on this morning. Of course, our lens in the text is that of persecution. With two sources of persecution that we're going to look at. Jesus makes a distinction here. He talks about persecution coming from the courts and synagogues. And Jesus also speaks of kings and governors. Now this is a very important distinction as we move forward. Understand that Jesus is speaking of both Jewish and Gentile persecution. Courts and synagogues are Jewish. Kings and governors are Gentiles. Now that's a really long way around to saying what? Everybody. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Right? Persecution will come from both Jewish and Gentile quarters. In other words, it's going to come from everywhere. Which means that we have four categories encompassed in Jesus' warning. Jesus, pers- we have Jewish persecution 
telescope in, and we have Jewish telescope out, just like we'll have Gentile telescope in and Gentile binoculars out. So hang in there. Press in. So laboring first to understand the Jewish side, the Jewish persecution. In ancient Israel, the courts were attached to the synagogues. In fact, if a town had more than 100 men in it, the Mishnah mandated a minimum of 23 judges. Seems kind of high to me. But these Jewish judges were essentially deputized to administer all manner of punishment and imprisonment. It would have been these courts that would have administered the 39 lashes that we read about so often in Scripture. Of course, they only gave 39. Why? To make sure that they didn't go over the maximum 40 that was allowable in the law in Deuteronomy. Thus, if we turn our telescope in, if we focus on near fulfillment, what do we see? Jesus told his disciples from the beginning, Matthew 10, 16 to 17, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. How's that for something? A house of worship was commonly turned into a house of whipping. We read earlier from the scene in this upper room. There Jesus went on to exhort his disciples in John 16 too, They will put you out of the synagogue. But an hour is coming. For everyone who kills you to think he is offering a service to God. I counted about 27 times roughly just within the birth of the church recorded in Acts and in the epistles of Jewish persecution against the followers of Christ, against the church. Now what of Gentiles in that time? Well, who was the primary apostle to the Gentiles? Who was sent to the Gentiles? It was Paul. And as the gospel spread all over the Roman Empire, there we expect to see Gentile persecution. And so we do, all over the place, kings and governors. Paul was continuously imprisoned by the Romans. He continuously faced trials and questioning from Gentile kings like Agrippa and Felix and Festus. Of course, Paul's persecution was not limited to Gentile actions, was it? Paul wrote that five times... I received 39 lashes from the Jews. They were all equal opportunity persecutors when it came to Paul. Such a troublemaker. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. And even even though, Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ and that I fill up in my flesh the sufferings of Christ, He encouraged his young protege, Timothy, what? That all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, as we've watched 2,000 years of church history pass, as we kind of slowly twist out that telescope, we've watched down through history, continued reminders of Jesus' warning and exhortation concerning persecution. I know at home every few months, we just got one yesterday, a magazine from The Voice of the Martyrs showing us that more Christians have been killed in the 21st century than all previous centuries combined. And still, a servant is not greater than his master. Christ has gone before each of those precious saints that we read about. Well, even before we come to birth pains, 
There's still great discomfort and pain in the pregnancy along the way, isn't there? While we could spend many messages just on the, well, the truths of persecution and its effect upon the church, let us be reminded that God has always used the means of persecution to purify his church. Understand this, saints. There has never been a time in history where persecution has been bad for the body of Christ. Not once. It has grown and grown during those times. Early church father Tertullian, he wrote, quote, The oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed, close quote. It's not the time of persecution that Christians need to fear. It's the time of plenty and ease. It is the time of prosperity that we must fear. It is the days in which we live today where the church is fat and lazy, when they're loose in their doctrine and they're impotent in the culture. That must give us great pause and consternation. Understand that the church erupts into a blazing fire of the glory of God when persecution is allowed to come. Theologian Matthew Henry, he rightly declared, quote, seducers are more dangerous enemies to the church than persecutors, close quote. A surer sign of God's judgment upon a people is not the allowance of persecution into his church. It is the allowance of seducers into his church. Far more deadly. Beloved, the beautiful days of the church, the days of glorious zeal, were the days when all they wanted to do with a good preacher was kill him. Those were the good days. John Rice said, quote, the world never burned a casual Christian at the stake. Never. You know, I was pondering recently about the obsession today with ancestral DNA testing. You ever done one of those? 23 and me or something? Everybody wants to know where they came from. Oh, I have German blood. I have Swedish blood. My great-great-grandpappy was the second cousin twice removed from George Washington. Great. Christian, let me tell you about your DNA. Let me tell you about the heritage that became yours when you were made a new creation in Christ. Your ancestors were dipped in hot wax. They were set up on stakes and they were set on fire as human torches to light the gardens of Nero. They were thrown to lions for entertainment in Roman Colosseums. Since Jesus' ascension, an estimated 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. That's your ancestry. That's your true family history. But in all things, Christ has gone before us. A servant is not greater. Looking forward in history, looking past the taking and the rapture of the church, turning out our binoculars, we look to the far fulfillment of verse 9 in the time of the tribulation. For they will deliver you to the courts and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. Beloved, there's nothing new under the sun. Are there still synagogues in Israel all over the place? Will there be people who are saved during the time of tribulation to be delivered over all over the place? Thousands, Jews and Gentiles, but as we will see later in our text, as bad as persecution has been in history, 
when the lust and the demonic desire to kill God's elect are given this speed and intensity by the Antichrist, the worst persecution ever known will be enacted for those who would stand for Christ during this time of tribulation, during this period of unimaginable wickedness. We see in Revelation that it will be wholesale slaughter whether enacted by Jewish or Gentile's authority. Yet understand, when they kill you, they will not say, I hate Christians. They won't say that at all. Scripture says they will think they are doing God a favor. No, you are a hater. You don't know the true Jesus of love and tolerance. Understand, beloved, the suffering and martyrdom of these saints will not be a noble affair. All the synagogues still in use today around Israel will one day be put again to the use of persecution. Jewish converts during the tribulation have that to look forward to. They will be hauled in, not because they are lovers of God, but because they will be called haters of God. Haters of the false religion that will pervade the world during that time. If they hated me, they will hate you. A servant is not greater than his master. And we see that while the time and fulfillment may change, saints, the reason for being delivered over to authorities and courts, that does not. The purpose for it does not. Back to our text, last part of verse 9. It will be for my sake. It stands as a testimony to them. If they weren't coming after Paul, if they never wanted to persecute Paul, would he ever have been able to appear before the emperor? You know, one of my favorite reflections of the sovereignty of God in persecution is Paul's epistle of joy, the book of Philippians. Paul is sitting there in chains. And how does he close out his letter? Listen to this. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Oh, I could jump. Did you catch that? Because of your persecution, because you arrested me, now I've been able to spread the gospel to the very highest echelons of government and society. Caesar's household greets you in Christ. How do you like that? No persecution can stop the gospel. And that's just what we see in our text. As Jesus continues his discourse, back to our text, looking now to verse 10. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Let us understand this. Just as in every other sign of the coming of Christ, we have seen the propagation of the gospel come to pass throughout the 2,000 years of the church age. Try as the forces of hell and wicked men can, the gospel cannot be stamped out. They have never squashed it. They've never been able to kill it off. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can't kill us off. You know why? You know why? What is the church? Yes, it is the ecclesia. Yes, it is the called out ones. It is those who are set apart. But set apart for what? For whom? What are you as a believer? Did you know that every Christian is a gift from God the Father to God the Son? Oh, beloved, read Jesus' entire priestly prayer in John 17. That's what the whole prayer is about. 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. Out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Christians are oft to forget that this whole plan of salvation, this whole redemption of wicked men, of dead men making them live, that desire did not begin with us or because of us or because you were something special. It had nothing to do with you. You and I are byproducts of a Trinitarian love affair. You and I are a wrapped gift given from the Father to the Son. And you tell me, what force in hell do you think could ever be deployed to hinder the giving of a gift from God the Father to God the Son? None. Kill them. The, only, the gift only grows sweeter. We'll see that in Re- next week in Revelation. You can't kill the church. You can't persecute it out of existence. It is the gift of love given within the Godhead. Can we wrap our heads around that? Not only that, but the gospel is, evangelism is, God's declared means and method by which he will redeem a people unto himself. God has chosen to give himself glory in this way. That's how he gives himself glory. And no force in hell can stand between God and him receiving glory. Such anxiousness and anxiety among the people of God. Do you know what you are? The precious gift given from the Father to the Son. That Jesus declares that he is going to hold you and keep you and never let you go. And why are you that precious? It's not because of us. It's not because we were something super special. It's the one who made us into the gift that makes us special. How many moms and dads have received Special gifts from their little kiddos. Honestly, there's usually nothing valuable in that gift at all. It might be made of the most original of things, the most common of items. There's no value to the world whatsoever in those gifts. But what makes it beyond value? It's the one who gave it that gives it value. It is because you love them that you love the gift. Tell me, how much does God the Son love God the Father? Can you grasp that? That's why you have value, true value, incalculable value. Don't take the cheap knockoff of self-esteem. Understand where your value comes from. It's unshakable. And that's why the church cannot be snuffed out. Not ever. The proclamation of the gospel has continued And it will continue. But something is going to change when the church is removed. The proclamation of the gospel as we see it today is like nothing compared to the means and the method that are coming. Truly amazing and miraculous things will happen during the time of the tribulation. Times like no other will yield methods like no other. And scripture shows us four ways in which the far fulfillment of the gospel proclamation will be carried out during a time where the persecution is at an all-time high, where the world's systems are collapsing, where false religion dominates. How does God go about it when that is the case? 
Well, the first we see is the saving and the raising up of 144,000 Jewish believers and evangelists. These are seen in Revelation chapter 7 and 14. And I love that one commentator refers to these as the first fruits of Israel. As Jesus restores the nation before Christ returns. Zechariah, he looked to this day. And in the 12th chapter, listen to the incredible eschatological and spiritual revival and awakening that's coming for Israel before the return of Christ. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me, listen, beloved, whom they have pierced. This is Zechariah. This is Old Testament. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over, over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. We see nearly all of chapter 12 showing Israel's repentance and chapter 13 showing her spiritual cleansing. The gospel will be proclaimed and there's going to be revival and it's going to start in Jerusalem. First through the 144,000. Next we will have two resurrected witnesses during the tribulation. Oh boy. (laughs) This is a message all unto itself. But we're just going to hit the highlights. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning, beloved, to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. Let us look at these two messengers sent from God. Jesus says that the gospel must be proclaimed throughout all the nations. And you'll never guess how. Beginning at verse 1, Revelation 11. It's best just to read it. It's so incredible. Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, saying... Get up and measure the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the sanctuary and do not measure for it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. By the way, beloved, that's three and a half years. And I will give authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Guess what that means? That means 1,260 days. Clothed in sackcloth, these are two olive trees and two lampstands that will stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wishes to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Beloved, do you know what that means? That means that fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wishes to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the authority to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They also have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. And when they have finished their witness, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them. And kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. 
And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another. Oh, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. So they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Wow. When we say that the gospel will be propagated to all the nations like no other time before, just as every other sign in the Olivet Discourse is magnified and brought to climax and crescendo in the time of the tribulation, so it is here. Now again, we haven't really time to dig into these two, message, these two messengers, but it is a fascinating study. But a few quick things for you to tuck away, a few questions answered. First, why two? Well, the Bible requires the testimony of two people to verify the truth of a statement. And secondly, who are they? Answer, we don't know. <laughs> the best speculation, it's probably Moses and Elijah. Both Old Testament and Jewish tradition expect the return of Elijah and of a prophet like Moses. And this is who appeared with Christ at the transfiguration, representing the law and the prophets, giving a preview of the second coming. And finally, both Moses and Elijah were both taken in ways that were unlike any other. Of course, Elijah never died, right? He was transported to heaven. Read about that in 2 Kings. And God buried Moses himself. No one was allowed to know where his body was laid. So scripture doesn't say for sure who they will be. But that's a pretty good guess. So not only is God going to save 144,000 Jewish people that are going to passionately evangelize the nations, but two messengers are going to come with mighty powers. And they're going to be killed. They're going to be murdered and raised to life for all to see. Satellite TV, internet, everyone will see. And many will heed their warnings and turn to Messiah. And if that wasn't enough, this is such a time of supercharged physical and spiritual disruption and chaos. All the stops are coming out. They're being pulled out. How else will the gospel go forth in the very end? Revelation 14, 6 and 7, I'll read it for you. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now bear in mind that this preaching angel comes on the scene after all the seal and trumpet judgments have been poured out. So we've brought you toward the very end of the seven years because this is a clear demonstration of the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus points to in the end of days. And because of when this angel comes just before the end, the state of the earth will be unspeakable. It will be unrecognizable. But we're shown some fascinating truths about this angel. And the English doesn't do us any favors here. 
But we see this preaching angel flying where? In mid-heaven. And why not just say in the sky? Why mid-heaven? Well, this comes from our word, mesuranima. This refers specifically to the point in the sky where the sun reaches its meridian, its apex. That's what you and I would call high noon. High noon. Meaning this angel is in the place where he will be most visible to the entire earth. Everyone will see and hear this preaching angel. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. Of course, the fourth way the gospel will be propagated will be by the many that will come to Christ during the time of the tribulation. Saints of the tribulation, those who've been converted by the evangelism of the 144,000, the proclamation of the two messengers, and as a last-ditch effort, the final hurrah, the preaching angel in the mid-heavens. And even here, as we look toward a day, beloved, when the heavens will shake, where the earth will melt down, where its final groan under the weight of sin will climax, where have we come to in our text? Yes, we see all of these persecutions that will come in horrific reality. We see the things that will happen. But beloved, what must happen. Where is the priority of the Godhead as he wraps up this world? The gospel must be proclaimed. What is our priority this morning? Lanesville 2023. The gospel must be proclaimed. If that is a message you do not know, if that is a message that is not the song of your heart today, Listen, because your life depends on it. This is what will be spoken by two witnesses with fire coming from their mouth. This will be what is spoken by a preaching angel in the mid-heaven. That before time, and in accordance with the good Father's good pleasure, the eternal Son, who is equal with the Father and is the exact representation of His nature, that He willingly left the glory of heaven that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, and that he was born the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. And as a man, he walked on this earth in perfect obedience to the law of God. And in the fullness of time, men rejected and crucified him. And on the cross, he bore man's sin. He suffered God's wrath, and he died in man's place. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And this resurrection is the divine declaration that the Father has accepted His Son's death as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus paid the penalty for man's disobedience. He satisfied the demands of justice, and He appeased the wrath of God. And 40 days after the resurrection, the Son of God ascended into the heavens. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and He was given glory, honor, and dominion over all. And there in the presence of God, he represents his people. And he makes requests to God on their behalf. All who acknowledge their sinful and helpless state and throw themselves upon Christ, God will fully pardon. He will declare them righteous and he will reconcile them unto himself. This is the gospel of God and of Jesus Christ, his son. This is what will be declared from the heavens. 
it is declared to you today. Be reconciled to God through repentance and faith in Christ. Just as he will make a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation. In a foretaste of that beauty, Christ will give you new birth and make you a new creation this morning. What a glorious day to come to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, great and precious promises are ours today in Christ Jesus. Lord, even as we watch the world around us, even as we know what awaits and what comes under the burdens of sin, oh, we are happy warriors. Lord, we are grateful that you have put this living hope within us. And Lord, like rivers of living water, it comes out of our heart and waters all around us. Lord, we pray that we might be salt and light to this world. Lord, that we might point, Lord, that the gospel may be proclaimed in our lives and in our homes. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.